think it's still appropriate to say Merry Christmas. So Merry Christmas. I want to welcome everyone here today. Uh, if you have your Bibles, keep them open to uh, Matthew 2 or your devices. Open them to Matthew 2. Our thoughts uh, will come from that section in just a moment. I want to begin with just a, a word of, uh, of thanks uh, and good news. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, of course, we've made everyone in, uh, aware of uh, the real need in Mayfield, Kentucky, and uh, you all contributed uh, $36,000 the last two weeks. So that is good news, and I want to say attaboy, and uh, we're, we're just, one of the things I've, I'm um, impressed with over the years has been uh, this congreg congregation's generosity. When you find out there's a need, uh, you give deeply and generously, and so I want to say thank you uh, for that. Well, so the text we're looking at today is Matthew chapter 2, and it is appropriate for a morning like today, because this is the day after Christmas, and this text, while it's a Christmas text, and we read it in conjunction with Luke chapter 2, we know that the events in Matthew chapter 2 happen a little later. Jesus hasn't just been born. He's not, he's not this newborn child. No, he's, he's grown a little, and now uh, the, the parents are in their own home, and so some time has elapsed by the time we come to Matthew chapter 2. And what we're going to do today, as John mentioned, is look at some responses to the presence of Jesus. We'll conclude our Christmas presence series this morning. And what I want to talk about for a moment or two is the response of Herod to the presence of this child. You see, as Jesus is born, the Magi make their way, they travel first to Jerusalem to speak to Herod. And they come with a question. And the question they ask is probably, probably would be a hard question for any king to hear, but especially this king. The question they raise is, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We have come to worship him. And so Matthew tells us Herod's response to this question in verse 3 when it says, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. You see, the child disturbed, threatened, made Herod angry. When Jesus was born, Herod the Great, as he humbly called himself, Herod the Great had been in power for something like 40 years. He's 70 years old, and this young child disturbs him. When you read something about the history of King Herod, you will find that he was a frightened, paranoid, egomaniac, and those were some of his good qualities. He is so threatened by this child that after he at first feigns worship, at some point he decides, after he has been outwitted, he is going to have all baby boys two years old and under in, in, Jerusalem, in, in this area, Bethlehem, the surrounding areas, killed. You can imagine how difficult it was for these moms and dads who no doubt some lost their children. This news that the Magi have come to worship the child disturbed Herod. 
But the fascinating thing about this passage of Scripture, and I don't know if you've noticed this, we read this verse very quickly. Not only was Herod disturbed, but it also says, and all Jerusalem with him. We understand how Herod was disturbed. He was threatened by this rival king. But how about the all Jerusalem with him? We understand Herod, uh, uh, paranoid Herod was disturbed, but, but maybe we could assume that, that the people in and around Jerusalem might welcome a new king. After all, he'd been such a hard king to live under. We wonder what's going on here. And yet, if you've heard the phrase, if mama ain't happy, ain't what? Nobody happy? You've heard that phrase before. Herod, he ain't happy. And people would prefer the misery they know to the mystery they do not. And one of the things I know about human nature is we, we kind of like status quo. We kind of like things to stay the same. We don't like things to be disturbed. We don't like things to be, to be different. And so that's how the people in, in, in Jerusalem and Bethlehem and the surrounding areas were feeling about King Herod. And while Herod is dead, friends, I want you to know today that his spirit lives on. Herod typifies Many people today, not, not so much the idea of Herod's violence, not that, but Herod typifies those in our culture today who are, who are radically self-absorbed. You see, many people feel threatened, even disturbed by Jesus. Oh, don't get me wrong, people don't mind taking a little time off to ponder the birth of Jesus. I mean, after all, we all kind of like Christmas, don't we? We like the sentiment, we like the, the feel of this Christmas season. People will, will embrace Jesus as a resource, especially when times are difficult. You've met people and you know folks who, who might not be praying people at all, and yet they hear the word cancer. Or maybe they find out that they've been fired and they are look, now looking for a job. And suddenly, maybe we, we begin to pray, we begin to seek Jesus. And many people, especially in the Bible Belt, are, are willing to add Jesus to their lives. We have good lives, happy lives. We're, we're willing to add Jesus to our lives to make life maybe just a little bit better and even call ourselves Christians. But when it begins to sink in that this little baby is the king who demands total allegiance, when we begin to understand this, that Jesus is Lord and Master, we start to feel a little, little disturbed. And while we're not typically threatened by a baby, neither do we want to bow before a king. Suddenly, this child becomes a threat. Do I really want someone to reorient my life, my priorities? That can be just a little bit disturbing. The spirit of Herod lives on when we find ourselves saying things like, I want to live my life my way. I want to come to church when it's convenient for me, when I don't have anything else to do. I want to manage the resources that God has blessed me with the way I want to manage them. I, I want to spend my money my way. I want to live 
according to my truth. The spirit of Herod lives on. And if we understand what Jesus is calling us to, we might find ourselves a little disturbed as well. So here's the question that this text causes us to grapple with and that I've been grappling with. Do we really want a king? Maybe. But if the truth be known, I kind of like the throne. I may want a savior. Oh, I want Jesus to save me from my sins. But do I really want a Lord? And with Jesus, he is both. The second group of people that we're going to be able to look at this morning from our text in Matthew chapter 2. After Herod, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. We read in Matthew chapter 2. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. So these chief priests and these teachers of the law, they knew where he was to be born. They knew. They quoted the scripture from the Old Testament prophet Micah, from Micah chapter 5, verses 2 and 4. They knew. They quoted. And they pointed to where they needed to go. They knew. They quoted. They pointed all really good things, all important things to do. But even though they knew and even though they quoted and even though they pointed, they did not go there themselves. They didn't go there themselves. And it's a fair question for us to ask ourselves this morning, are we ever guilty of that same shortcoming? of knowing and quoting and pointing, but not going there our very selves. Have Christians lost our influence in culture because we've known and quoted and pointed, but we haven't been the right kind of example of how to live it out every day? Have Christians lost much of this emerging generation for the same reason have we pointed and quoted and known and shown that to our children but failed to go there ourselves? We all know that our kids watch us very closely. They watch us like hawks. They see our choices. They see our decisions and they compare them to what we say we believe. Children do as we do, not as we say. And when we make choices according to God's way, we demonstrate a real, an authentic, a genuine faith. Our kids see it, our culture sees it, and we prove our love for God and our desire to belong to Him by choosing to follow His will and not our own. 
So the question for us to consider as we consider the chief priest and the teachers of the law, are we only pointing toward Jesus or are we also practicing our faith every day in him? It's really interesting to me that Deuteronomy contains the instructions that God gave his people before entering into the promised land. And it's real interesting to me to notice the order of those instructions in chapter 6, where God, through Moses, said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. And then he says, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Did you catch the order of the passing along of the baton of faith? First he says, love and follow God yourself. Then he says, Teach your kids and others to do the same. So what does this mean for us practically? We have to find ways to not only know and point and quote all good things, but we have to find other ways to point people to Jesus. We have to find ways to convey to those around us through our daily actions, that our faith is real. We must do all we can every day to grow closer to Jesus ourselves. Other people, including our kids, must see that our connection with Jesus is a vibrant, thriving relationship and not just a tired, hollow ritual. Other people, including our kids, must see that our relationship with Jesus is a priority. It has to be real. A culture is out there begging to see a real, authentic faith. Our kids are desperately needing to look up and see older adults living out a real, genuine faith. It was G.K. Chesterton who said that the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. When it came to trying something, doing something, seeking the Messiah, going there themselves, the chief priests and the teachers of the law had become largely academic and apathetic, rigid and ritualistic. We cannot allow ourselves to fall into that same trap where we only know and point and quote, but that where we go there ourselves, where we still seek the Messiah, where we still look for Jesus in the everyday mess. I saw a sign at the, at the, at, on the front of a church building this week. It said, wise men still seek him. Wise men still seek him.
The chief priests and the teachers of the law didn't do that. They knew, they quoted, they pointed, but they did not go. But fortunately, the magi, the wise men, they did. And they'll be the third group from Matthew chapter 2 that we'll look at in just a moment after we sing this song. Bear with me this morning. I didn't get a coal for any coal for Christmas, but I did get a cold, so um, hopefully my voice will hang in there for a few minutes. Matthew 2, 11. On entering the house, the Magi saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. One of my favorite traditions for our family in recent weeks is that of going to look at Christmas lights. And when I say look at, it would be better described as looking for Christmas lights because when Everly gets in the car, we are not passively glancing around. Everly will not have that. Instead, we are actively looking for lights. We'll drive down Main Street turn off into a neighborhood, and then we are on the hunt. Anytime Everly sees the slightest glimmer of light, she will scream with enthusiasm, hey, look, there's Christmas. And what I've noticed in recent weeks is that this experience with her has changed me. Yes, I am more tuned into finding lights when Everly is in the car, However, I'm also tuned in to looking for lights when she's not in the car. Even when I'm alone, driving around town, running errands, I have noticed that I see things differently. I find myself looking for lights all of the time because of our time together. Those experiences with her form my experiences when I'm not with her. This is one of the things that the gospel stories do for us, especially these about Christmas. These accounts from Luke and Matthew are intended to shape, form, and impact how we see the world. We enter into these stories year after year after year, and that rhythm of reading and reentering them helps us to see the world differently. I think this is especially true of these mysterious magi that we read about in Matthew's gospel. These men, very likely astrologers of some kind, have one of the most unique angles upon which for us to see the birth of Jesus. They are outsiders and distant travelers coming all the way from the east. They are tempted by the manipulation of King Herod to become pawns in a power-hungry plot, yet they are saved by a vision from an angel. These are wise men who could have easily swayed off course to merely pointing and pontificating like the chief priests and scribes. And yet, and yet in the face of these possibilities, they stay the course to find the child who has been born king of the Jews. They resist manipulation. They resist pontification. 
They show resolve. They demonstrate commitment. They do what it takes to find this baby king born of the Jews. And in doing so, they show us something significant about seeking. That to seek something means something. To seek someone calls us to be a certain kind of someone, a person of courage, resolve, and commitment to this baby king who is the savior of the world. They show us that seeking and pursuing Jesus are active endeavors, not passive activities. We don't merely glance around, but we look for Jesus in all that we do. And so when we're tempted by the powers that be or the pontificators that be, we resist. We show courage. We continue to choose to pursue the child who has been born king and who still reigns as king today. This is what it means to declare Jesus is Lord. We are saying that we are committed to him and pursuing him with our whole lives, just like the Magi did that very first Christmas. And in this way, Christmas is a kind of invitation to all of us. We're invited to recommit our focus to pursuing Jesus as Lord for the second or third or even 30th time. And for some of us, we are invited to declare that Jesus is Lord for the very first time. And so this morning, we're invited to make that declaration that those magi made many years ago, that Jesus is Lord of all, that Jesus is Lord of our life, and that we will pursue him all of our days, no matter what we may face. This morning, if this is an invitation that you would like to respond to, then you can do that now while we stand and sing.